Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Being part of Left Field Investors has been a wonderful thing, not just because of our founding group and the meetings and the, and the conversations that we have, but the community that we've developed and that we're creating is allowing for that confidence to build in all of us, right? And I think that's what it is, is just making sure that you have the confidence in yourself and go with your gut to say, this is a good thing, this is a bad thing. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as $100,000 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Pfeiffer. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. Today, we have a great guest, Sean Donnelly, one of the founders of Left Field Investors. Sean historically has been um, an epic right fielder with great success, someone who invests in the standard Wall Street products. That's kind of what we call the right fielders. But Sean is also incredibly open-minded to new investing ideas, which has recently pushed him more towards left field. Sean's been a great resource to me, sounding board and friend as we've journeyed together deeper into left field and, and started left field investors. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Quite the intro, pretty spot on. I am um, definitely a, a right fielder, but I would not be a uh, left field investor's founder if I didn't believe in in what you've been trying to tell me all these years. So uh, happy to be a guest and 
look forward to what we're going to chat about. Awesome. Yeah. And, and thanks for being here. And, and that, that is the truth. You know, one of the things that I really uh, admire about you is no matter what crazy financial idea or otherwise that I throw your way, you are always up for um, getting a beer or a meal and talking about it and listening to it. And that that's something very admirable. Well, I appreciate that. But, you know, you're usually the one offering to buy. So that's any, anytime somebody's going to offer a free meal or free drink, I'm there. So there you go. Well, someday, hopefully we'll get back to that. So can you start out just kind of tell us your journey? How did you get here financially? You know, I know you've been a, a stock market guy. So I'd like to hear, you know, how you got into the market and how you got so interested in finance and then kind of your journey as to how now, you know, I know that you're investing in uh, passive syndication. So how did you get from from where you were to where you are? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and probably one that the answer is probably not one that's all that dissimilar or all that unusual from all the other folks that are out there in real estate, passively or not. You know, I found myself with some extra funds, wanted something to do with it. And I had a buddy who was living down the street from me. And uh, he was actually going, to, this was a Saturday morning, he was taking a walk down the street to go see a house that was up for auction. And when I first tell people that, they think, well, what kind of neighborhood were you living in? There was a house going up for auction, but this was 2007. So think about that. And it was quite the opposite. We lived in a very nice, very nice suburb neighborhood here outside of Columbus. And for reasons that I didn't know at the time, which I quickly found out uh, why I was at auction, it was just, you know, it was an older couple who had passed away and the house, they had difficulty selling it. So anyway, he said, I'm going to walk down there and, and check it out. What do you think? And I was like, yeah, I got nothing else to do this morning. Why not? So we went down there and we ended up being the uh, the winning bidders on this house that went to auction. Well, fast forward a year later. So our plan was to flip it, flip it, obviously. And fast forward 12 months later, almost on the nose, and we were back at auction. You know, it was a very good lesson in that I knew that I did not want to be in the flipping business, at least that at that level in the way that which we were doing it. But I knew that I wanted to be in real estate and I knew there was a good path to follow in real estate because there's a bunch of different things that offer, you know, depending on what your likes or dislikes are in real estate, you can find that, right? There's a bunch of different paths that you can take within real estate. So I thought, you know what? I really like this real estate thing. I like owning the real estate, but I don't want to have to work on it. I don't want to have to take the phone calls. I don't want to have to, you know, just deal with that those headaches. You talk about the toilet overflowing or clogged or whatever, getting those phone calls that everybody dreads or talks about. But I didn't know how quite to get from the flipping to that. I didn't really know anybody that was doing that, the rental business, didn't know anybody that was property managing, you know. So it was kind of difficult. And so I just sort of lumbered around trying to figure out, all right, what do I do? And it was stockpiling cash along the way. And then you and I reconnected. And that was, you know, when you were in your financial adv advising role, and you mentioned that you had some rental properties. I'm like, oh, let's talk a little bit more about that. So quite honestly, as you know, it was, it was you and your introduction there to a property management company, guy who I, I like a lot, and um, went from there to own single family to duplexes. And then as you moved more into the rentals, you also got more into the passive and discovered that realm. And you had been talking to me about that for, geez, I don't know how long, 12 months, 18 months, something like that. And like usual, I took my time, underwrote it, listened to what you had to say. My OCD, you know, kicked in overdrive and I started paying attention to all the details and did my own research and 
and then decided, okay, yeah, this, this seems like a good idea. Cause at that time I was, you know, I was getting tired of even, even though I wasn't managing the properties myself, I was getting tired of just looking at accounting, uh, trying to follow paper trail, trying to pay for this or pay for that. And it just became clear that there was a better way to, an even better way to do it. So while I still hold those rentals, I'm now actively in the passive investing realm as well. Again, thanks. Thanks to you. Awesome. So you talked about when you did your your flip and it wasn't real successful. And, and I had the same experience when, when I did my flip. You know, I always joke we made hundreds of dollars on our flip. Well, that's that's not the kind of return you want after holding a property for nine months and doing all kinds of uh, work on it. But what about the flip? You said that kind of got you thinking about real estate. How did an unsuccessful flip kind of light the bulb that, oh, now I want to go do real estate? Yeah, that's a great question, right? Because it might, uh, quite the opposite may happen for folks to drive them away and say, ah, this was a terrible idea. I want out. I don't want anything to do with real estate. This didn't go well. But as that flip was going on, you know, like most people in real estate, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I had other friends in other places outside of my realm, outside of Columbus, who were doing some different stuff. And just through reading and research, I knew that because of the different paths that you could take in real estate, I knew that I could, if I just stayed at it with my research and just being patient, I could find something that would make some sense for me. And quite honestly, I did get back into the flipping business, but I did it differently than the first time around in that where we went wrong the first time around was we just didn't know what we were doing. Second time I had that knowledge, the limited knowledge that I had from the learning experience. And the partner that I went with that time, buddy of mine, is a contractor. So it made sense to go at it that way. So I, even though I learned and it was a tough learning experience, it didn't scare me from real estate in general. And it didn't scare me away from the flipping business. I just took the money that I had lost and wrote it off as college course, if you will, in, in real estate. And I just applied those learnings to what not to do going forward. Uh, but it propelled me to, to find those other avenues within real estate that do make sense for me. Flipping makes sense for people for, for others out there, right? I mean, people do very well flipping. I just knew that that's, that wasn't going to be the way that I wanted to go. It's a little, as you know, it's, it's way more active than passive. And I just, I don't have the time. I mean, I have a regular W-2 that funds a lot of my passive activity and real estate activity and flipping just wasn't for me. So when you think of the comparison to, you know, being in real estate or investing in the market, like I know you still do, when you take a loss in the market, I don't feel like you get as good of a lesson because it might not be something that you did wrong. It might be the economy. It might be the particular stock. There's a million things that you don't even have any influence over or know about. But when it's in real estate, you can learn from your mistakes and it doesn't chase you out of real estate. Sometimes it just gets you, gets you into it in a better way. It's like you said, I love the paying for a college education. You know, If you lose some money in real estate, but you've learned something that'll help you move, fo- move forward, that's still good, right? That's still okay. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, what's it's the old cliche, and I forget who said it, right? But our greatest learnings are in our failures. Thankfully, this was a relatively speaking, it was a it was a cheap lesson. Yes, it, it was a loss, but got to write it off, right? And again, it's the learnings that I took away from that. And if I had just sat on the sidelines and said, "Oh, ho hum, I lost a bunch of money, and you know this sucked," and didn't do anything with that, then shame on me. Right. But I'll also say, you know, my buddy and I did that. It was quality time with him. 
you know, so there's all of that intangible too, that came along with it, just the laughs and now a good memory and we can, you know, joke about it. So if I just sat on the sideline and just was bombed and upset, then shame on me. I want, I, I was, that fueled me to do something with that. And then it was right. on my shoulders to figure out, okay, what's that going to look like? Okay. So now you're, you're doing some passive investing. When you look at your, you still have the rentals, you said. So yes. when you compare the two, I'm thinking about selling some of my rentals and people ask, well, why, why, why are you selling them? And my thing is I want to move into more passive with that, with that cash. So how are the returns on your single families or your duplexes compared to what you're expecting to get from some of the passive investing that you're doing? Yeah, I would say, you know, the returns on the rentals are, are lumpy. So when, when they're returning well, and as I would expect that they would, or I should say, as I expected they would when I first got into them, you know, when you're running the numbers and you're doing your own pro forma and you're looking at expenses and you're trying to factor expenses and taxes and all that stuff to figure out what your net income is going to be from that and your cash flow, it's great. But the problem is all of a sudden a roof needs to be replaced that you weren't anticipating or HVAC system goes out, furnaces, the boiler is old, so it needs to be replaced or you know, trees need to be taken out. I mean, these were all things that happened along the way for me that I wasn't, yes, I knew that eventually if I held it long enough, those kinds of things would be need to be replaced. I just wasn't anticipating as soon as some of those did. So when that happens, then obviously, you know, it's not nearly as good as the passive because the passive is not lumpy. It's consistent. You know, you know, if you if you connect yourself with a, with a good sponsor, right, and that's that's the first thing you need to do is, is vet your sponsor. And if you're with a good sponsor, they're going to deliver consistent results, and you know what those results are going to look like. I've been fortunate that in many of my syndications thus far, have started paying immediately within a month of the close of the deal. And I know that's unusual for a lot of the a lot of the deals that are out there with reason. I mean, it makes sense. Why not? So I've had consistent cash flow from those that hasn't been lumpy. I know exactly what's coming my way. And I also know what, what should come my way in the future based on the performance. If they, you know, if they return and they perform the way that they're supposed to based on the forecast. Now, certainly things could change, but right now in the interim, things are performing the way that they outlined for the investors. And that, so that's very consistent versus the lumpy returns of your own personal, more active real estate. Yeah. I think that the, the lumpy returns, I love that because that, that's that's the truth, right? I just had to uh, excavate the street to get to a sewer line. So the lump there is um, that property's not going to return anything for a year or two, right? So I'm hoping my other properties make up for that. But but it is the lumpy versus consistent. That's that's a great way to say that. So one of the things when you first got into passive investing, how difficult was it to send that first wire? Because when I talk to people, the minimum investment, 25 or 50 grand, maybe 100. And you talk to the person maybe a half hour and they then you get the deal you you underwrite the deal but are you really underwriting it you're just kind of reviewing it how did you get yourself to where you were ready to to send that wire you know me you know that is tough for me cuz you're right you're you're talking at minimum 30 minutes if you can grab a little extra time with these sponsors when you're you're talking to them for the first time it might be 40 or 45 or maybe if you're lucky it's an hour if they don't have anything else on their docket right so now all of a sudden you're going from a situation where you don't know somebody to you only know them for half an hour. And now all of a sudden they're going to become your best friend because you're sending them some money and it's gone. Right. And I have no tangible asset now. You do because you're a limited partner, but 
unlike your own rentals where that are truly tangible, it is a very odd feeling, but it's sort of like buying a stock. You're sending money off to your broker or that comes out of your account, automatic withdrawal for your 401k or whatever the case is, is sort of out of sight, out of mind. This is a little bit different because you have to physically wire the money. So you are, there's plenty of opportunity or, or, or time there for you to second guess what you're doing. I certainly did that, you know, as, as I'm at the bank filling out the information, I'm like, God, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Uh, and then it's just a leap of faith, right? Because if you do in tune to what's going on in the passive world, I am certainly not the expert, but I'm getting, you know, I'm becoming more comfortable in my research. I'm becoming more comfortable with terminology. I'm becoming more comfortable with just that environment. But if you do that and you vetted that sponsor and you feel comfortable with that sponsor, then you, sh- at the end of the day, you'll, you'll be okay. Cause you're not, I'm not the only one, right? It'd be a little bit different if I was the first investor, the first time a sponsor has, has brought a deal to somebody but I'm not. There's a bunch of other limited partners. And so I think there's some comfort there as well. And certainly knowing you and doing a lot of what I've been doing has been on the heels of of your work and your research. And then certainly being part of Left Field Investors has been a wonderful thing, not just because of our founding group and the meetings and the, and the conversations that we have, but the community that we've developed and that we're creating is allowing for that confidence to build in all of us. Right. And I think that's what it is, is just making sure that you have the confidence in yourself and go with your gut to say, this is a good thing. This is a bad thing. And I feel like I have a pretty good gut. There's there's been two situations where my gut was telling me, don't do it Two investment situations. Don't do it. And I did it and they backfired on me. Um, There's been one other situation where my gut told me, don't do it. And I didn't do it. And it was a good thing. So. That's the other thing too is 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 your gut is a powerful tool if you can if you can listen to it and sometimes you're gonna you're gonna listen to it and ignore it like like I have and hopefully it ends up being a relatively inexpensive learning experience but but that's the other thing it's just having this community of people that are doing the same thing as you and have the same fears the same trepidations but then also the same joys from it too is great I think that's just been a huge huge blessing for me to be around people that have pave that path and I can tap into, you know, people like yourself. It's interesting. I, I appreciate you um, not telling everybody the gut deal that you didn't do um, was one that I recommended to you and I did do. And uh, that was regretful, but not horrible. I still made money on that deal, but it was not worth it. <laughs> That's for sure. And I'm glad you did not get into that one. So you, you mentioned as we were talking there about vetting sponsors, as long as you vet the sponsor, I think you said. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you, how you do that? You know, are there any resources you use? I know we have some stuff through left field investors, but you know, how did you vet the first one, and maybe how is it different now? That's a good question, and I, I think everybody probably approaches it a, a little bit differently because everybody's looking for their own thing, right? Their own match, and somebody that appeals to me may not appeal to you. But one of our tenets within left field investors is to know, like, and trust, right? And I feel like I'm, I can get a pretty good sense from somebody pretty early on. And so for me, it's that first phone call is just more or less trying to get a sense of what are these people explaining to me and how are they explaining it to me? Are they treating me like like a newbie and they want to help or are they treating me like a nuisance to them? And maybe my questions, while they might be elementary, are they taking the time and the patience to answer them or are they, are they coming off as being annoyed by something that maybe I should already know? And so with all the, all the folks that I've talked to, 
I just come out and, and, and well, it was a little bit easier to be upfront with them about my experience the first couple calls because I didn't have any passive uh, investing opportunities under my belt. And now I've got a little bit, but again, as I said, I'm, I'm by by far an expert in it. So it's still easy for me to say, listen, I'm a newbie in this. Yes, I've got a fair amount of money tied up in some deals and I've talked with some sponsors and I've diversified, but here's why I'm calling you. Here are some things I want to find out. So I usually just go into it with a list of questions, pretty basic questions. And again, depending on how the tone and the the way, the angles and the messaging of the the answers that they provide me in those to those questions kind of tells me yay or nay. I don't think a magic sauce to how I do it. It's just more or less being prepared. I'll do a fair amount of preparation before I call a sponsor. So that's by going to their website, you know, the 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 company that they represent or a part of that they're a partner of. I'll go to their website. Most of these uh, legit sponsors uh, and syndications have thorough websites where you can read about their their mission. You can look at past and current, potentially maybe future deals they're looking at. You're not going to they're not going to have the details listed on there, but it it'll give you a sense of what what they're trying to accomplish. I'll look at YouTube. Many of them have uh, videos out there. If they've got a podcast, I'll check out a podcast or two. So there's plenty of resources out there. And so I think, you know, you didn't ask me for a recommendation on how to advise somebody if they're going to make that first call. But if you were to, what I would say is just prepare. To your point, you're getting ready to write a check that is going to be, you know, represent a fair amount of money. Whether that's 25 or 100 grand, that's a fair amount of money. You don't want to go into it unprepared. You want to, you want to know who you're talking to within you know, the, your, your possibilities. And so use the resources that are around you. The internet is a, is a great tool. Many of them have written books. Some are going to be, you know, if you can get an ebook for free or, you know, Amazon might have a copy of their books, read their books too. I don't know. It, it, it's pretty simple if you ask me. It's no, uh, as I said, there's no magic sauce there. For me, it's just about preparation. Just be prepared. Yeah. Do you find the um, the syndicators or the sponsors, are, are they accessible? Can you, after the first call, are they going to answer your call the next time? Or do they respond via email? And does that factor in at all to your evaluation? Yeah, because the communication piece, is, for me, is huge. If they are welcoming of your call or email, my thought is they're going to be welcoming afterwards as well. So if you send them money, now you've elevated your position within their scope, right? So if they're if they're going to give me the time of day prior to, because they're attracting you, they want to attract you to their business, then my hope is, or my thought is, they're going to be that way or more so after you actually send them some money. And I and I, I have found that. There's one one sponsor who, you know, I just, I don't get it. I don't get warm and fuzzies with. It's got some, you know, great deals out there, but I just, not warm and fuzzy. And you're going to run into that. It's, it's no different than the real, real world. You know, whatever it is that you do, you're surrounded by people that you connect with and people that you don't connect with. And that's the beautiful thing about the syndication world is not only is it a potentially a path for you, but you're going to find within that, on that path, you're going to find deals that you like, deals that you don't like. You're going to find sponsors that you like, sponsors that you don't like. And you might like them, but you don't just connect as well with them. And that's the beautiful thing. You just move on down the road, right? You're not offending anybody. You just find what works for you, find that niche, find that space, and then just keep capitalizing on that um, and find through those conversations, you'll find other people that are of like mind and you'll be able to connect with those people as well. It's hard because, you, again, you're having this 30 minute conversation. You're really trying to size somebody up, but they're trying to size you up, too, to a certain degree. Yeah, they want your money, 
But at the end of the day, if they don't like you and they don't like having a conversation with you, they'll probably still take your money, but they're not, they're certainly not going to answer your call or answer your email when you follow up. But every time I've had tried to have a follow-up conversation, either on a phone call or an email, I have always been pleasantly surprised. And I'll even say to me, I'll go further in that that's sort of a signal. The communication piece is a signal to me after the close of a deal, right? Because you want to be, you want to be abreast of what is going on. If it's a multifamily deal, you want to know about the renovations. You want to know like their plan, how things are going. And then when it's time for distribution, you want to see the distribution. You want to, you know, be informed. You want communication that way. So to me, it's, it's all related. If they're willing to communicate, be transparent up front, they're going to do that in the middle and they're, they're, they're going to do that throughout the deal and they're going to do that at the end as well. I mean, that's been my, my experience in a short period of time. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. How would you recommend to someone who doesn't have the connections, you know, you're in a community now, left field investors, that, that, that kind of helps us all. But how does someone who's just getting started, how do you find a sponsor that, that you can then vet and, and get to the point where you're comfortable putting money with them? How do you find that, that sponsor? Well, my assumption is that if you are that person, whether you're listening to this podcast or you're listening to other podcasts or you've picked up a book, that's your starting place, right? You now know somebody that is dealing on some level, has dealt with or is dealing with a sponsor. So start, you got to start there, right? I mean, you can't, I think it's very hard just to go into Google and type. I mean, you could do passive investing syndications and there might be some lists that come up. So you could start there, I guess. I don't know why you would just, I personally would not just throw myself out there into the, into the wind. I want to pitch my wagon to the work that others have done and build upon that, do my own, my own work as well. But if I, there's comfort, right? There's, there's comfort in numbers. And if other people are comfortable talking to these sponsors, then you should at least be comfortable talking to them. You might not connect with them enough to do a deal with them. 
but you do one or two, you're going to get more comfortable talking to them and you'll find the people that you, you know, you connect with. But as far as finding, you know, just blindly finding that one, I don't know. I mean, that's a great question. But again, my assumption is you're, you're, you've already done some homework. If you're listening to podcasts, you're sort of somewhat aware of passive investing and maybe you know some names out there or you've got friends or family that are doing that. Just, you know, piggyback off their information and the work they've done and just tap into them. That's not a great answer to your question because I, because that's not a way that I would do it is just blindly throw myself out there. I'd start asking for referrals and start using my own network to figure out who, who should I call? Who could I talk to? And you're right. I mean, our left field investors is an awesome place to start because we're, all of us have done that work and we're trying to compile that and share that with, with folks so that you don't have to be that person that sits there and goes, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to begin. We can be your spot to begin. And I'm not trying to plug us because there's plenty of other places that you can go to as well. I guess what I'm trying to say boil it down to is use the resources that you have around you before you just blindly do something. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, like you said, find a community, right? Whether it's left field investors or a different community, it it doesn't matter. But that's a good starting point to find some people. Because I remember when we first started left field investors, and I had just been kind of passively investing on my own. When I met Steve, who's also another another founder, and found out that he was in some of the same investments I was in, that was such a relief because I thought, is this real? Am I really doing the right things here? But to find someone else who'd invested in you know three or four of the same exact, not only with the same sponsor, but same deals, it was just a big sigh of relief. Like, okay, confirmation, on the right track. Steve's a smart guy, so off we go. And that, and that, I think that that's what the community can, can do for you is, is help you cut that first check, send that first wire and just have the confidence to do it. You're just continuing to solidify my point because you, you and I had had multiple conversations around passive investing and, and you, you know, explaining it to me and why, what your process was and sort of what your goals were. And I was already down that path. And then we were at a, another meeting together, another real estate meeting in town together. And Steve was there. And I didn't know, I know Steve from a completely different part of my life that I live. And uh, I had no meeting at Catholic school together. We go to the same church, you know, so that part of my life knew him from a little bit, but not, not a great deal, but enough to recognize him. So when he was at that meeting, and then you say, yeah, you know, find out that he's doing passive stuff. Then it just, it, you know, it just snowballs from there that, yeah, I already trusted Jim. Well, man, Steve is a smart guy. I trust him as well. And I know him. And, you know, so it just compounds from there. And I think that's what you have to do is you find that community, that network, and you start having those conversations. And all of a sudden you find out you're not the only one. And there's not just two and there's not just three. There's a, there's a bunch of people that think like you and want to do the same, you know, have similar goals as you and want to try to accomplish the same stuff as you. So for me, that was powerful when, you know, again, already moving down that path with you and having those conversations. But then once, you know, found out that, that you and Steve knew each other and then you guys were in deals together and Steve was very, very much involved in the, the passive investing world, just magnifies why I should be in it as well. Yeah, that's good. So switching gears just a little bit, I know you've been investing in the market your whole career. So the 401k and, and all that stuff. How does the passive investments, how, how do they affect your retirement planning? Are they part of your retirement plan? Is there any changes that you've made to your retirement, or the thoughts of retirement or your plan, because now you're in these passive investments where before you were mostly in, in the stock market? I would say it's greatly increased my outlook 
on what retirement is going to look like. And by that, I mean, not only just lifestyle, but time frame. You know, but going back to your financial advising days, you certainly know of my desire to, to retire early. And by early, I mean before I can tap into retirement accounts without huge penalties, right? So it's, so for me, I've always been trying to figure out and think through how do I fill that gap? Whether that's four years, four and a half years going from you know, 55 to 59 and a half, or if it's three years or whatever that case is, there's, there's gotta be income coming my way to fill that void. Otherwise I'd have to tap into those retirement accounts and suffer some, some pretty major penalties. And I don't wanna do that. So real estate, the rentals that I had, you know, fit into that bucket. Okay. This, if I hold, if I hold these long enough and they perform the way that I should, or that they should, then that's a way for me to, uh, to close that gap and tap into to funds that are available without suffering big penalties. But as we discussed earlier, that's lumpy, right? I can't rely on that. Yeah. It'll be there, but I don't know. I can't plan. I can't budget around that. So this passive stuff, the passive investing is taking that to a much higher level will definitely allow me to close whatever gaps I want to close because it's all dependent upon me. How much money do I want to throw into the passive investing world? How much money do I want to throw at syndications? And I can, I can turn that spigot on. I can close it a little bit. You know, I can regulate that to, to, to my needs. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I have a, you know, a W2. Um, so my, process right now is not, I don't need the cash flow, but I, for me, it's, it's about appreciation. It's about the yield, the longer term yield because of that, that gap that I want to close. And so for me, if I can figure out this, the hard thing for me to try to do in this past world is figuring out how to ladder my deals so that I'm always getting that perpetual income, you know, the cash flow, but then also the yield spinning off so I can reinvest that that, that profit into other deals that are going to spin off cash flow. So right now, even though I've got, you know, I, I, because I have the W-2, it's more of a yield play and appreciation play. But as I get closer to those years that, that I'm going to want to hang up the W-2, it's going to become a, you know, more of a cash flow need and play for me. But by that time, you know, I hopefully we'll have figured out that ladder where I'm getting the cash flow, but I'm also getting the appreciation that allows me to invest in other deals. And it'll just keep snowballing and, and grow even, you know, even bigger. And so what my hope is, is that I don't even have to tap into my retirement accounts to the level that I would have if I didn't have any of this passive stuff going on, which would be great. So you mentioned appreciation versus cash flow. So I know that there's, you know, when I invest in, you know, single family homes or those type of things, or when I used to, I always thought I need to make sure these cash flow, I'm not just going to bank on appreciation. And for me, it's the same in the syndications. But I think what you're talking about for appreciation is more of the forced appreciation, the forcing equity. Is that is that true? And if so, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, that is true. But I do think that, you know, we, we've enjoyed a great market right now, too. So those that have been doing some passive investing much earlier than myself and, and maybe you as well have already enjoyed appreciation in the way that you would normally think of appreciation because they've they've already gone full cycle on some deals so they've 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 been able to reap the benefit you know those sponsors have been able to sell those deals either to a hedge fund or to a REIT or whoever so they've been able to reap the the appreciation of, appreciation of just the market now it'd be interesting to see if the market continues to go up right we know the market is lumpy as well but yeah i mean the the, the forced appreciation is 
you know, these, these sponsors do a great job. Again, if you, if you do your job as an investor and you research and you vet, what you should be doing is, is hooking your, your wagon to somebody that understands the properties that they're buying. The properties that they're buying should not be already renovated. They should not be properties that don't need to have anything done to them. Certainly those are out there and there are sponsors that are doing that, but your return is going to be much less with obvious reasons, right? So the, so the folks that we're, that we're, I am targeting are the ones that are finding appreciation within the properties, right? So they can go in and they can renovate some of the units and bring those up to more modern. They can go in and do maybe some laundry facilities. They can do some fencing. They can do some charge for pets. They can do some stuff there that's going to bring additional revenue, but also is going to improve the property from a sales standpoint, whether that's three years, five years, seven years, whatever that case may be, they're improving the property as they go along, but they're not doing so much work that it's not going to make it attractive to somebody when they go to sell. There's still going to be meat on that bone for somebody else to come in and say, what I'm paying is fair and appropriate because I can still make a profit off of this property by doing whatever else needs to be done, you know? So it's, and that's what you get in the, in the executive summaries is trying to figure out, okay, what is the plan of this sponsor? And if you know that sponsor well enough by investing, you know, enough deals with them, you get a sense of what they're going to do and what their, what their plan is. But that's, that's essentially, you know, the folks that I know you're targeting folks I'm targeting and most of the, you know, the left field investor squad are targeting are those, those folks that are going in there and recognize the value they're getting that property right now at a price that's appropriate for it, and they're going to make the improvements. They're going to get that cash flow, and then they're going to get that appreciation based off the work that they've done. But then they're going to be able to sell it to somebody that still is going to be able to put more work in there and do what they need, they need to do as well. Right. And that, that makes sense. I think the critical difference that I didn't realize until I got into passive syndications is, for the most part, if you buy a single family home for rent, the upside, the appreciation, you're hoping the market will send your price up. Where if you're buying into a passive syndication that has a bunch of rehab they're going to do, you are forcing the or the syndicator is forcing the equity. Every dollar of net income that you increase, then the value of the property goes up because that's how they're valued, right on cap rate. So yeah, that that's that's kind of what I was thinking is when you think of it conventionally, you're hoping the market appreciates, but here the market doesn't really matter because you're hoping that the forced appreciation will. Um, increase the value of the property, you know. So I also, like, I'm a little bit different than you, where I have cash flow needs now because I don't have a W two. So I'm investing in both types of deals. I also invest in those deals that I'm investing just purely for cash flow. They may they may buy property that's already renovated and already good to go, and so then you get cash flow immediately. So you know, it just depends on what your goals are. You know, and I'll just clarify there too that the deals that I am that that I am in are cash flowing, right? So. Except for two, which which will soon. Most deals will cash flow. It's just a matter of what is that cash flow now, and some of the deals that you're in might ca- the cash flow is higher than the deals. You know, the the return is higher now for you because you don't have a W two than maybe some of the deals that I'm in because the appreciation for me is going to be higher because I need that down the road. So just to be clear, I am in cash flow deals. It's just they might not be cash flowing as high as as yours are because I don't need that right now. Right. And I think it's just important to recognize while you're investing, like, why am I getting in this deal? For me, I'm in both kinds because I want the appreciation, but I also need the cash flow. So for someone that has a W-2, maybe they're not, not as interested in the cash flow. Someone that's getting near retirement, maybe they are. 
And that's the one thing I, I also wanted to ask you is Wall Street typically has this 4% rule, right? You, you, you accumulate assets your whole working life. And then when you retire, you take out 4, 4% of it and never, never spend the principal. So do you think that the passive investing you're doing right now is going to change if you were thinking about kind of the 4% rule or something similar to that? Does the passive investing you're doing now, is that going to change your outlook? Not right now at this moment, because I want to see how this passive stuff plays out. But my hope is that, yeah, either it could change, you know, you could continue with that 4% theory, but now you've just got a much bigger bank to pull from. So it could change your lifestyle. So I think everybody's different in, in how they're going to use, use those funds. So I could see where it would potentially change my thought process. But I would say right now, no, I, I'm just continuing to put my head down, do my thing and figure out how the passive, you know, fits into that, that plan. That makes sense. Last question about these passive investments. What are your favorite type of assets? You know, there, there's a lot of different uh, investments you can do out there. What, what do you favor? Yeah, you know, I am in multifamily. And I'm in industrial triple net lease. I did do an oil and gas deal. This was before, again, before the truly passive stuff, but that just went, that went way south. So I'm not, I kind of migrated back to do what you know, do what makes you, what you're comfortable with. I know apartment buildings. I know multifamily. I know industrial buildings. But, you know, I've also set goals for myself in 2021 to expand and to challenge myself to learn more about some other sectors. So I say, Certainly ATMs attract me. You know, there's something there that, that I want to uh, dig into a little bit more. Self-storage, mobile home parks. I mean, I think those are all, there's some fantastic sponsors out there that I've, you know, heard talk. Some of them have come on uh, or will be coming on as guests to our podcast, our meetings for left field investors. So there's some wonderful opportunities out there. It's just, I haven't gotten to that, to that point yet there where I feel comfortable enough to, to write some checks to, to, to support those. Awesome. Well, uh, we're going to close up here. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I appreciate it. Just like all of our conversations, um, they're, they're very enjoyable and informative. So I like to close with a couple of selfish questions. So I, um, because I have to buy you a beer, I want to get something out of it. So when you're looking at a deal to invest in, you've already vetted the sponsor and you're, you're good to go there and the deal comes across. What are two or three you know, metrics that you really like to evaluate and really give you a sense of whether you're going to go into this deal or not. Or if those metrics don't get where you want them to be, you're, that's an easy like, no, I'm not doing this deal. Outside of minimum, the minimum investment? Yeah, well, that, that could be one. That's certainly one that I, that I look at because I'm, I like to have you know, diversification. And I like the lower minimums because I can put more money in different spots. And that really helps out with my overall goal, my overall plan. So that, I would say if that counts as, as, as a metric in your in your mind that's certainly the first one i'm going to look at is what what is what is the minimum and that's not to say that i wouldn't go beyond what i would normally do if i really like the sponsor or i really like the deal certainly capable of doing that would wouldn't have any problems with that but it would have to i'd have to the deal would have to fall into that those buckets right the sponsor is good and i like the deal the other metrics for me would be geography trying to stay within that diversification model i don't want to have too much in florida i don't want to have too much in texas i don't want to have too much in arizona so I'm really looking at that as well as, you know, what, where my personal holdings are, of course, from a geographic standpoint, but also just the U.S. and what's going on in the U.S. right now. You know, tax situations, riot situations, COVID situations, you know, all the stuff that's going on right now that's hitting our country. I'm paying attention to that, too. And so does it make sense to invest in like 
deal that's in downtown Los Angeles right now. Maybe for somebody, but I, I would sit there and say, no, not under my own personal parameters, if you will. So looking at my own portfolio for diversification as well as what's going on in the U.S. and, and how does that impact you know, the deals that I, I want to be in? Are they in a good, a good state, a good spot, a good city? Is it growing? You ask for three, that's two. Uh, you know, ob- the obvious ones are cash on cash return, multiple, the IRI, you know, all the true, real good financial financial ones as well, obviously. But I, for me, it's if I've got a good, good sponsor and it's in a place that I like, then generally it's going to hit all of those other matrix or data points that I'm looking at because I'm familiar with that sponsor. I'm familiar with his or her deals or the group's deals. So I kind of know that it's probably going to fit the other matrix that are, that are important to me. But I would say those are, those are the ones that are up there for me. You know, vacancy is an important one as well. But to me, that ties into geography and, and the demographics of the city that it's in. And, you know, from a crime standpoint, from a employment standpoint, from a growth standpoint. So it's, it's hard to nail down two or three for sure. Are there any things that would kill a deal for you if you see it and you're, you just say, no way? I mean, aside from location and, and the amount invested, is there anything that you see you just walk away? Yeah, I would say the one thing that, that really turns me off, it's sort of related if you know, I have a range in my head of, say, cash flow. If something's really high above that, I don't know that I'm going to walk away to your point, but I'm certainly going to, it's going to be a red flag. I'm certainly going to ask some questions, especially if it's a sponsor that I, that I know, back to our earlier communi- uh, part about communication. I'm going to reach out to that sponsor. I'm going to figure out, hey, did I run these numbers right? Am I seeing this right? Like, why is it so high? This just doesn't seem right. And same thing with being really, really low. You know, it's just, if you see anything on as an outlier from that range that you feel comfortable or that is an appropriate return, whether you're looking at cash flow or IRI or a multiple, an outlier on either side of that range should send up red flags to the point where you're going to communicate with these sponsors, again, because you know them and hopefully you already feel comfortable with them, you know, like, and trust them. And if you don't get the answers back that you're looking for, that makes sense, then you walk away. That makes sense. So the last question and this again, totally selfish because I'm always looking for other people's opinions on this. Can you tell me uh, what a great uh, a great podcast that you listen to, one that you really enjoy, whether it's related to passive investing or finance or, or not? My favorite podcast is one by the name of The Way I Heard It, which is Mike Rowe. Everybody knows Mike Rowe from, from Dirty Jobs, right? I love history and I love even more so, I love quirky history, you know, just some of those those facts that are out there that people don't know about. And that's a good one for me because it, it scratches that history itch. But it's also a quick hit. You know, his his little excerpts, his little sessions are, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes. And normally that's about my attention span. So it works out really well that I'm killing two birds with one stone. It's, it, they're just long enough that I can pay attention. They hit, the, as I said, they scratch that, uh, that history itch. So that's, I say that's my favorite. But then I also like, TED Radio Hour from NPR. It's TED Talks, you know, or, or in that vein, TED Talks. And that's good from a personal development standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, from a business standpoint. There's, you know, wide, wide array of, of speakers, just like on TED Talks. So I'd say those are, those are two go-tos for me. I know you only asked for one, but I would say uh, just, you know, since this is passive investing discussion, and neither one of those are really passive investing. The one that uh, I've been listening to lately is one that you you turned me on to very recently, which is We Study Billionaires. I think that's a that's a really good one because that's from what I found thus far. It's a um, 
it's a podcast that has a wide array of, of guests, a wide array of topics, and it's a really interesting one. So I'd say those, those, are, those are my three right now. Awesome. Thank you very much, Sean. You've been a great guest. This has been a pleasure. I will get you that beer at some point when we're, when we're in a different place. So thank you for being here, and uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. I really enjoyed my conversation with Sean, and I hope you did as well. He's a thoughtful guy, and he's fun to collaborate with on the uh, left field investors. I liked how he talked about the lumpy returns of single-family homes. That has certainly been my experience, and it is a little bit smoother generally with the passive syndications that we're doing. That doesn't always mean you get greater returns, but the lumps aren't there, and that's something that I'm looking for. Get rid of the lumps. Sean is one of the founders of Left Field Investors, and I'm really enjoying working with him and the other founders. And as our group grows, it's really growing into a powerful community. And I look forward to seeing where we go and and who wants to come with us. Thanks for hanging out in Left Field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.